everyone. This is 30 Day Trek. I'm your host, Luke Cannon, and in this episode, we arrive to Star Trek Deep Space Nine. And I just want to say right up top, I am so excited that we're finally here. I'm always hesitant to say which of the Trek series is the best. I like to think of Star Trek as a whole, rather than the sum of its parts, with each of the series and era of films contributing different elements and qualities to the franchise. It's a tapestry with over 800 threads and counting. But if I have to say which series is my favorite, I would have to go with Deep Space Nine. I think pound for pound, it is the strongest series overall. It had the best cast, the best writing, the best individual episodes, and was without a doubt the bravest of the series. It was not afraid to go in directions that neither the original series or the next generation would dare do, and it brought more shades of grey and moral complexity to the franchise and in the process ended up elevating the franchise as a whole. I go way more into detail about this on my other podcast, Ramblings of a God from Rujana 2.0, in an episode devoted entirely to Deep Space Nine, which is still my longest episode to date, and I heard you all to check it out. I think it's one of my better episodes. And if someone were to ask me, I've never seen Star Trek before, where should I start with it? My answer would be to start at the beginning with the cage and then where no man has gone before, the Corbomite maneuver, and then forward with either production order or air date. But the very first thing that you should watch is the episode we are covering today, the penultimate episode of season one of Deep Space Nine, Duet. This is my favorite episode of not only Deep Space Nine, but of all of Star Trek, because I feel that this episode perfectly captures the essence of what Star Trek is. This is the episode where, upon a Cardassian played by Harris Hewlin, arrives on board Deep Space Nine, Kira Nerys, Sisko's second-in-command and the Bajoran representative aboard the station, insists on detaining and interrogating said Cardassian, who has a disease that could only have been contracted at a labor camp ran by the Cardassians during their occupation of Bajor that had a mining accident. And the majority of the episode is the back-and-forth between her and the Cardassian, as she and the rest of the cast try to figure out if he's either Goldar he a higher up in the Cardassian military who ran said labor camp and got the nickname The Butcher of Galatep, or Eamon Maritza, a file clerk who worked at said labor camp. And throughout the episode, Kira's hatred and prejudice of Cardassians are challenged. This episode was written by Peter Allen Fields, who had previously written the TNG episode we covered, Half a Life, as well as co-wrote one of TNG's best episodes, The Inner Light. He then was brought on for the first two seasons of Deep Space Nine and got story credit for another classic of Deep Space Nine, In the Pale Moonlight. Here, he wrote the teleplay based off an idea by Lisa Rich and Jean Kerrigan Fauci, who were two interns working on the show. To quote the latter, the basic premise was, what would happen if you had to defend your worst enemy? What would you do if you had to be responsible for his life? There's so much inherent conflict in that concept. And of course, it was only natural to use Kira and a Cardassian in that situation and to have them both learn something about each other. Developing the idea further, Iris Stephen Bear, the man who would eventually become the showrunner and main creative force behind Deep Space Nine, suggested that they take their cues from the 1967 play The Man in the Glass Booth, which was a play in which a Jewish businessman is accused of being a Nazi war criminal. It was written by Robert Shaw, and if you're wondering, yes, it's THE Robert Shaw, aka Quint from Jaws, and Leonard Nimoy himself was in a stage production of it. And when one watches the episode for the first time, one can pick up on that allegory right away. 
As for the episode itself, this was another bottle episode done as a cost-saving measure since this was near the end of production of the first season. This was also a showcase for the main guest star of the episode, the aforementioned Harris Eulin. Again, we have another veteran character actor whose name you might not recognize, but who I guarantee you've seen elsewhere before. He's probably most famous as the judge in Ghostbusters 2, but his career goes all the way back to the 70s and 80s with films like Night Moves with Gene Hackman and Scarface to the 90s and early 2000s with Clear and Present Danger, Stuart Saves His Family, Cutthroat Island, Multiplicity, the Mr. Bean movie, Rush Hour 2, and Training Day, as well as numerous guest starring roles ranging from Quentin Travers in Buffy the Vampire Slayer to 24, both versions of Nikita, Unbreakable Kimi Schmidt, The Blacklist, Billions, and most recently, the HBO limited series I Know This Much Is True. This guy is the definition of the consummate working actor, and here, he gets to shine as he goes toe-to-toe with Nana Visitor and play up the chilling war criminal. But as Kira's interrogation continue, and Odo, Dr. Bashir, and Sisko dig deeper into Goldar Hill's past history, glaring inaccuracies begin to pop up. Most notably, when Gold Dukat tells Odo that Goldar Hill has been dead for six years. And he should know, since he was at his funeral, along with half of all of Cardassia. And while Dukat is far from a reliable source, the evidence against Darheel's claims begins to mount, and Kira is forced to realize that the man that she's been interrogating isn't who he says he is. Which leads to my favorite scene in not only this episode and in Deep Space Nine, but in all of Star Trek. How are you feeling? I was starting to get a little bored, but seeing you again brightens my day. I was referring to your Kalinora syndrome. Would you like to see Dr. Bashir? Oh, so that's it. You want to see me writhing around the floor in pain? Cardassian would never put on such a deplorable display in front of a Bajoran. You just don't understand us at all. Beginning to understand a great deal about you. One thing does puzzle me. And what would that be? How you contracted Kalinora syndrome. Do you think that the mining accident affected only the Bajoran laborers and not our Cardassian masters? That would be very nice. So you're saying you were at Galatep when that mining accident occurred? Of course! Why are we going over this again? Because your own progress report shows you were back on Cardassia at the time of the accident. That's ridiculous. Receiving your proficient service medallion. The reports are wrong. I can show them to you. That won't be necessary. I know where I was. Why were you taking a dermal regenerative? I don't know what you're talking about. Then let me help you. Five years ago. When you first got to court. All right, that's enough. Your presence no longer amuses me. Get out. Why did you have your face altered? Security, get this woman out of here. Why are you pretending to be Guldar Heel? Why don't you ask me something intelligent? As for instance, how did I feel when we were withdrawing from Bajor? The answer is I was furious. The thought of leaving any survivors behind was repulsive to me. So while our, our useless office clerks were packing their precious files, I ordered my overseers to begin slaughtering the laborers. If you felt that way about your filing clerks, why did you take Moritz's name? My plan was to do nothing less than kill every Bajoran in the camp. And to this day, my one regret is that I was not able to accomplish this honorable goal. You're Moritz, aren't you? You mistake me for that bug. That would bring nothing. Oh, you stupid Bajoran. Carl, don't you know who I am? I'm your nemesis. I'm your nightmare. I'm the Butcher of Galatep. The Butcher of Galatep died six years ago. You're Eamon Maritza, his filing clerk. That's not true. I am alive. I will always be alive. It's Maritza who's dead. 
Maritza, who was good for nothing but cowering under his bunk and weeping like a woman, who every night covered his ears because he couldn't bear to hear the screaming for mercy of the Pajoras. <laughs> Covered my ears every night, but I couldn't bear to hear those horrible screams. You have no idea what it's like to be a coward. <laughs> See these horrors and do nothing. But it's his dead, he deserves to be dead. You didn't commit those crimes, and you couldn't stop them. You were only one man. Oh, no, don't you see? I have to be punished. We all have to be punished. Major, you have to go out and tell them I'm Goldahil. It's the only way. Why are you doing this? For Cardassia. Cardassia will only survive if it stands in front of Bajor and admits the truth. My trial will force Cardassia to acknowledge its guilt. And we're guilty, all of us. My death is necessary. What you're asking for is another murder. Enough good people have already died. I won't help kill another. The first time I saw this episode, it was over the Labor Day long weekend in 2016. Space, now currently the CTV sci-fi channel, was doing a five-day Star Trek marathon of each of the then-five Star Trek series of what were voted on by the fans as the ten best episodes of each series. And the first episode they ran of Deep Space Nine was Duet. And when it got to that scene, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. To see Harris Eulen go from the frothing-at-the-mouth villain to the broken man so consumed with guilt over his inaction during the occupation of Bajor that he assumed the identity of a dead man in order to put his entire race on trial is one of the best bits of acting I've ever seen. That is an acting level of difficulty that few actors could pull off. And to do it while buried under tons of prosthetic makeup makes that moment all the more amazing. And to see Kira Nerys, a woman who has been a member of the Bajoran resistance since she was old enough to pick up a gun, see this man not as the enemy she's been fighting her whole life, but as a broken individual who was just as traumatized as she was, let him go and forgive him, as well as the gut punch of the final scene on the promenade, where the wheel of hatred and violence turns yet again, just as Kira has freed herself of it, gets to the heart of what Star Trek is. Like the best science fiction, Star Trek uses the genre as allegory for the real world and explores the humanity of our past and present. But unlike a lot of other science fiction, which are pessimistic, cynical, cautionary tales about our self-destruction, Star Trek is science fiction that actually believes in the human race. That with the right amount of ingenuity and compassion, we can become part of something greater than ourselves. And the episode also goes back to the theme of the enemy is not what it appears to be. From the Horda in Devil in the Dark to V'ger 
Voyager in Star Trek The Motion Picture, this episode for me exemplifies that theme the most successfully and in the process distills it down to its purest form. As a production, as entertainment, and as television as an art form, no other episode of the entirety of Star Trek I feel exemplifies this better than Duet. I hope I've conveyed with this episode just how great an episode duet is. If you haven't seen it, I highly urge you to check it out. And if you've seen it before, just watch it again and marvel at what Deep Space Nine was able to accomplish in its first season. Join me tomorrow when we jump ahead to Season 6 with an episode that is another stone-cold classic of Deep Space Nine that is more relevant now than when it first aired. Live long and prosper, and also, live well.